0: everybody, and welcome back. Yes, welcome back <laughs> to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the critically acclaimed network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs.
1: Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic, and I have an irritated eye. Oh, no. Uh, one of my other occupations, uh, the one that puts food on the table, is I'm, I'm a
0: Thank you all our patrons, by the way. The, <laughs> we, the, the food might not be on the yeah. table, but the rent wouldn't get paid without you. Oh, so oh, thank go- you so much.
1: Golly, yes. Um, no, well, I mean, j- just like everybody, I, I have to have to hustle. Don't
0: we all do. Uh, and I, I have a it, soap business.
1: Yeah, there you go. We, yeah. we, we we all got stuff on the side, and then uh, yeah. one of my uh, one of my primary gigs is as a film projectionist at the New mm-hmm. Beverly Cinema, and I worked on a film strip tonight, a sixteen millimeter film strip that was so. big. Badly rotten and degraded, it, it like it, it. It smelled like a fish and chip shop. Like yeah, when when not vinegar.
0: Yeah, when, really vinegar. when film degrades, well, it's, called it's called vinegar
1: syndrome. And yeah. when film yeah when film degrades, it lets off this really really pungent vinegar like odor. And it was so strong tonight that it started to sting my eyes. And that was hours ago, and my eyes are still stinging from having just to to be within proximity of this this rotten film reel. Never let it be said that film archiving isn't mm. a full contact sport. Oh goodness no. You've you've seen Cinema Paradiso?
0: Yeah. Yes, I have. <laughs> I have. It's, it's a it's a little mockish poor, poor, but otherwise
1: pro- projectionist got his eyeballs burned out. Well, man. yeah, but
0: he was working with, with silver nitrate without like yeah, well. any, without like a blast shield. Like you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> anyway, this is we've got he's with Bebs. Uh, this mm. is uh, we've got Mel This is the podcast here, Critically Acclaimed, where we invite all of our listeners to write in. Our email address is Critically, no, it's letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. You'd think it's 74 episodes. you think i know this by now. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is, shh, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email address. It gives me the sillies. Uh, And uh, yeah, we invite you to write in, ask us questions uh critique our critiques ask us for film recommendations mm. and take us to task for goodness sake if necessary yeah we we, we welcome it we all want to be better people and uh well i think we'd be hypocritical critics if we weren't able to take a little criticism once in a while right so we're all trying to be our best and sometimes we need people to point out when we've come up a little short mm-hmm. so uh in any case we don't like to dilly dally too much at the beginning of these podcasts we already did yeah, it a little, too, but... Too late. Well, could be worse. So let's just jump right in. Whitney, who's our first email from? Uh, our first email
1: is from Moses. Hello, Moses. Hi, Moses. Um, Dear Bibbs and Throat Wobbler Mangrove, pronounced Rockmeister McCool. <laughs> nice. Um, Rockmeister McCool is my name on this show. Yeah, it's, if, it's, if it's his Dear Abby moniker. There you go. It's yeah. my, my nom de plume. Uh, so once again, enjoyed a week's worth of entertaining and informative podcast from you guys. Thank you very much. You're However... <gasps> I must point out a slight inaccuracy in a comment you made on your episode of Episode Zero regarding the first two Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan films. Oh, dear. Uh, Whitney, you said something along the lines of, the very first thing photographed was a horse running, and right after that it was a picture of naked ladies. Sorry if I'm mis- misquoting you, but the spirit is correct. Yeah. Um, being a professional photographer myself, and having studied it in a, in university, I feel I should point out that isn't exactly true. The first known photograph was taken by Nisiphor Niep- Niepce, from uh, years 1826 to 1827, uh, of the view from his window. See, attached. And uh, yeah, there's a wow. picture of... Uh, out of That's not the, that the first
0: photograph That's ever? the very first photograph no, ever. I see that. That's yeah, right awesome. There. It's
1: all... Really cool. It looks like an Elias wow. marriage
0: film. Yeah, it looks really ah gri- oh, the grit on that. <laughs> wow, yeah. you can just see the emulsion. It's gorgeous. Yeah,
1: remember when they tried to get rid of like the grain when they moved to digital technology? Oh, and I know. Everybody said it's no, oh. no. Well, they the smeared green. everything. Everything yeah. looked like
0: it was like a cartoon. Like, everybody everybody looked like really kind of no. Film grain yeah. is part of the image. It adds texture. It's where all mm-hmm. the life comes from. Yeah.
1: Uh, what you were likely referring to was the works of Edward Moybridge, uh, who famously created a series of photographs of a running horse in 1877 in order to help some millionaires settle a bet as to whether or not all four horses' hooves leave the ground at once during full gallop see attached.
0: And I've seen those pictures before. Yeah, I've
1: seen those yeah. too. And And yes, indeed, all
0: four feet leave the ground at one point. Yeah, it's, it's he- weird to, to think that there was a time there. when that was like an object of like debate. Yeah. Well, like, that's like, people were freaking out about that, but like, there was no yeah. way to prove it. Yeah, there no, there's no way to yeah, literally so they had to, prove it. Had yeah. to,
1: like not, there weren't motion cameras yet. Uh, but yeah, they had to like take a bunch of still photographs and mm-hmm. see if it actually happened. It's believed for centuries by many, while that it does happen, the horse's legs would be extended all the way from the body. The photograph photograph photographs shocked the world by showing that a horse's hooves leave the ground when the legs are all curled under the body. Moybridge continued to make similar studies of people, men and women, walking, running, boxing, fencing, performing cartwheels, etc., while nude. These were considered to be of scientific interest until he started doing studies of women bathing and spanking one another, see attached. Mm. Uh, then eyebrows began to raise and his reputation began to be questioned. <laughs> On the subject of Tarzan, I have an amusing anecdote about uh, his worldwide popularity. I was attending an afternoon weekday prayer at synagogue and, to my shame, had forgotten to silence my phone. Oh, dear. My ringtone for text messages is the Tarzan, yell. Yeah. <laughs> sure enough in the middle of the prayer the jungle yodeling of an ape man blasted forth from my pocket there was a stunned silence and then the sound of a 90 year old Hasidic rabbi chuckling <laughs> with agonizing snowless he stood up pointed at me from across the room and croaked Johnny Weissmuller <laughs> Have a great
0: day, guys. That's awesome. Thank you. And
1: here's here's the uh, women bathing picture. Oh, classic! She's she's standing in a basin and pouring water over her head.
0: The expression Whitney was. We were talking about um, Mm -hmm. how um, the idea that um, sex and Mm -hmm. violence in media, or especially uh, visual media, Mm -hmm. is somehow new uh the idea that all oh, movies didn't used to have sex and violence in them and how that was that was a lie. Uh-huh. And uh Whitney it an it's an adage that I had heard. I I never actually took it entirely literally. Mm. Uh but uh it goes that the first picture taken was that of a horse that is yeah. often believed to be true, but and the second was of a naked woman. And uh yeah, I actually love learning that there's some factual merit to that, <laughs> but not really. Not and quite, I, yeah. I I love I love knowing that. Thank yeah. you for that. Yeah. yeah. Um it
1: it wouldn't surprise me to to learn that uh, uh the French photographer who's photographing out his window mm. also like tried to find nude ladies to photograph like out right out of his away. window yeah. like well
0: just like oh across the street you know like in rear know. window <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the first photograph was an act of voyeurism the first photograph was a murder mystery <laughs> <laughs> oh wouldn't
1: that be a keen like that would be great uh, like what would they call that historical uh, mm. uh
0: um, fiction
1: yeah, like the historical fiction, but like the murder mystery. I think there's a
0: term for that. Oh, there genre, is a the term yeah. for like murder mysterizing yeah. something. Yeah,
1: I don't know. Them. But yeah, a mur- murder mystery about the very first photograph would That'd be, be cool. Yeah. yeah, it'd be
0: cool. And that's uh, why we don't see that first photograph anymore. It got burned. That's by right. By the, first, the, the first one.
1: We don't know about <laughs> like that. Everyone's one. like,
0: I have this photograph. What the fuck is a photograph? How do you know? <laughs> this new technology proves yeah. he did it. It's- it's actually not bad. <laughs> if anyone, okay, we just gave that to the world. If anyone writes that, you have to name some characters after us, mm. and we just we want to thank you if it turns into a movie.
1: I want to be a bumbling cop that the yeah. bad guy kills partway through the movie.
0: Nice. I want to be. I want to be a funny uh, uh, coroner.
1: Oh, the wisecracking pathologist. I want to be the
0: wisecracking pathologist. If there's a movie I wanna be in the, I wanna be the coroner. Yeah. You got that's the best part. That's the best role in
1: anything. It, it, yeah. <laughs> like, come on. It, it's such a cliche, but I always love it when the show turns up in a movie. The only
0: better role in a movie is the guy in the Airbud movies who pulls out a clipboard and says, Ain't no <laughs> rule says a dog can't so, fill in sport here. Play and, volleyball, play baseball. And and somebody in a Godzilla suit. Okay, well yeah, that right. goes not saying. Okay. <laughs> I mean I meant with lines. You know they overdub those guys.
1: No, they speak their own Godzilla. They speak they t- their own they Godzilla? Take, they, they, take don't, weeks, they don't. weeks, weeks they don't, long courses.
0: <laughs> they don't have a to, pre-recorded to go Godzilla
1: noise. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Our next letter comes from Fab. Hello, Fab. Uh, hello, Hi, Fab. Hello, Bibbs and Senor McCool. Uh, great iron list of the best musicals ever. Can't wait to watch The Tune. I recommended The Tune. It's you did? Bill Plimpton movie. Yeah. Uh My top musicals, in oh. no particular order, are Hedwig and the Angry Inch, one of my favorite LGBT movies. We didn't mention it and that is our fault. That I, is a remiss. It would have at least made vulnerable mentions. Like, it's yeah, it's, it's a it's pretty damn amazing, honestly, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, the Ruttles, All You Need Is Cash, Uh hilarious parody of the Beatles. I Worry This Gem um, uh, Could Fall Into Obscurity. Yeah, the Ruttles aren't talked about stateside too much.
0: It used to be. There was a brief period in the 90s when they were pretty well known, and like the, mm-hmm. the album sold pretty good and was on TV fairly often. But yeah, the Ruttles were this uh, kind of this is Spinal Tap, but for a fake version of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Um, at, The music was pretty good. Actually, yeah, they they did, they did a good job.
1: Um, Eric, Eric Idle was one of the ruddles. Uh, I remember a really funny gag where um, this is uh, the, the doc It's a fake documentary, and the documentarian was standing in front of the uh, stadium. He says, "This yeah. is Shea Stadium, named after that famous leader, Shea Stadium." <laughs> I, I thought that was that's that's a gag that stuck with me. That's pretty yeah. funny. Um, Number three, Echo and Mexico, a documentary about Mexico's music and heritage. Even though this is a documentary, I think it belongs on the list because of how the music is woven into the dialogue and flow of the film. I yeah. don't know Echo in Mexico. I don't know that one. Okay? I'll check that out sometime. Uh, Singing in the Rain. Yep. Singing in the Rain. Uh, Across the Universe, in addition to the music, you got to love the production design. Uh, we posited that it's like I can't tell if that's like one of the greatest movies ever made or one of the worst,
0: and it's it can really be bo- and it can be both. Yeah, so kind uh, of simultaneous. Yeah. There are people who think, and I know a lot of like hardcore Beatles fans, of which I am also a hardcore Beatles mm-hmm. fan. But I know a lot of hardcore Beatles fans who reject Across the Universe because it's a Beatles movie without the Beatles in it, yeah. and it's a bunch of covers and. They're really bending over backwards until, you know, their bones break. Uh, they try to, like, find a way to weave a narrative out of every single Beatles hit like they could possibly get in there. Like, we can't leave anything out. We must find a place for it. And mm-hmm. some of them work better than others. Um, but for me, what I think is kind of fun about it is that it posits that even without the Beatles themselves, their music spoke to a generation and, like, yeah. was actually, mm-hmm. like, indicative of many facets of life in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And... As a result, there's something kind of pure about it, almost death of the author kind of appreciation of Beatles music. And Man. I think I think it's interesting. I think it's an interesting movie. I don't think I mentioned in my honorable mentions. I probably should have also as well. Mm. But and it is a hell and of course it's Julie Taymor. so it's an impeccably yeah. designed motion picture. Man. Yeah.
1: Uh, number six, Rock and Roll High School. Yay! Uh, number seven, Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story, which, oh, I, which I haven't seen.
0: I, I actually, hmm. I know a lot of people who sing the praises of this movie and call it one of the best comedies of the century. Yeah. I have also not seen it. It's not, I mean, not avoiding it, for some reason, it just never <laughs> just, comes yeah, up. It never, it
1: hasn't drifted into our field of I will yet.
0: see that movie at some um, point, and it's probably going to, based on the number of people and the... Who love it and the praise that they sing of it, I'm probably going to go, why the hell didn't I watch this earlier? Uh, number eight is
1: Dreamgirls. Mm. Number nine is Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Which, does that count as a musical? I guess so. I guess it's kind of a musical. I mean, it's got yeah. Sweet Talking Candy Candyman. That'll stick yeah. in your head. But yeah. Um, it, it's about musicians. Yeah. I mean, it's an awesome film, that's I mean, great don't, don't capture, get me wrong, okay. no, but if, no, if, no, no, yeah, no, it's if you want to
0: start splitting hairs over genre,
1: I suppose I, I, it could I, be a musical. I, I
0: would think that it probably doesn't have quite enough music to be a musical, but I also mm. wouldn't fight you on it. So probably, that's why I wouldn't even have considered there. it. Yeah, well, it is my happening, and it freaks yeah. me out. <laughs> um, and number 10 is Tenacious
1: D in The Pick of Destiny. <sighs> I, it, which, which is, it, it's fun for
0: kind of how cheap and silly it is, I think. I feel like that's better music than it is a movie. Like the music is really really good. All of the classic bits are in there. Uh but I think the movie itself is a little it's even almost seems shabbier than the show did <laughs> it was to me. But um what I realized that I don't think I mentioned and I'm actually mad at myself if I forgot to mention this. is pop star never stop never stop it. Oh god, yeah, we didn't mention that we one. We didn't either mention that one. Nice. And in retrospect that should have been in my top 10. Yeah. I I mm. really do think I I dropped the ball on that one in particular that one of the funniest movies of the decade. One of the funniest movies of the century. Mm. One of the funniest movies like in a long, long time. The music is really catchy and it's really, really funny. The movie works. It's it's very, very silly, but it also has some heart to it. And like, it's just fucking <laughs> it's just great. spot on. It really and nobody is. cared when it came out. There was some. There was it, it like some critics loved hard, it. Some yeah. critics loved it, but like nobody watched it. And that's a fucking crime. It mm. is such a good motion picture. I hope people see this movie more. Anyway, I yeah. just love it. But like, please you know, see Popstar. Please see Popstar. If, if Star. you haven't seen Popstar. It's so yeah. funny. Yeah. Uh, but that's a and, great uh, list.
1: Oh, and there's some honorable mentions. Yeah. Uh, Tommy, and this is Spinal Tap. Uh, yeah. Tommy's a fascinating beast, isn't it? You've I seen Tommy, I've never right? seen all of Tommy. Oh,
0: okay. <laughs> I admire Tommy. I don't know if I would like Even Tommy. Even if you've seen Tommy, it feels
1: like you haven't seen all of Tommy. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's so much information, your brain just stops absorbing it after a while. Yeah.
0: Um, Spinal Tap, I I have a weird relationship with Spinal Tap. I actually like the second Spinal Tap album more than I like the first Spinal Tap movie. Okay. Uh, but, uh, it's a really, really funny movie. I think, I don't know, there's so many, like, great classic bits in there, but there's also a whole lot in the middle Mm. that just kind of vapor, there's, like, ten bits that I remember very, very clearly, and then Uh, there's also the rest of the film. Well, I
1: I remember watching this as Spinal Tap when I was younger. I was, like, Mm. maybe, like, 11 or 12 years old, and... I didn't get the joke yet because I had seen some oh. music documentaries and to my eye, it was indistinguishable from a real music documentary. Yeah, But they, I was assured it was a comedy, but I didn't see any of the jokes. Weird. I just saw sort of a straight
0: up music documentary. One of the great uh, controversies I've ever had mm. in any job I have ever had. And this is something where you cannot get three people to agree on this. <laughs> You're working at a video store. Uh huh. Spinal tap. Does it go under S or T? It goes under T. The title of the film is This is Spinal Tap. I agree, but most people call it Spinal Tap. Would they not look for it under S? That was the argument.
1: Mm. Well, it doesn't matter where they're looking. You <laughs> file it correctly. But then it. they can't find Spinal Tap, and then
0: we spend... All, <laughs> then they el- ask for Every you. single... But then we constantly have to show them where Spinal Tap mm-hmm. is. Wouldn't it be easier if we just put it under S? I uh, agree okay. with you. I also put it under T. Yeah, no, uh, but I'm just saying I've run into this argument Every video store I ever worked at, every video store I've ever visited, if it comes up, it's a point of contention. Everybody Mm -hmm. goes, ah, not this again. I I actually got into, not a row,
1: but just had a a little bit of a snit with a a fellow archivist of mine uh, over where you would file the Jurassic Park sequel.
0: No. Oh, The Lost F- World Jurassic Park? Yeah, because yeah. the title
1: of the film is... The, or it would be Lost World, colon, Jurassic Park, comma, The.
0: Yeah, it's not a subtitle, it's a mm. super title. Right. S-U-P-R-A. Mm. And that's actually something that... They're often used interchangeably, but technically... I actually did a, a schmodown, mm. uh where uh, I was asked the question, um, what Stephen King movie had a 1990s sequel with the subtitle The Rage? Mm. To which I replied, Carrie. Mm. But... After I answered I was like technically Though that's a super title because it's the it's Rage, rage Colin carry 2, carry two yeah. Not carry 2 the rage And they were like do you want the points or don't you And I'm like okay I want the points I, want the points. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to make it clear this is between a subtitle And a super title mm-hmm. Anyway So the question yeah. is do you fall I, I, What I would do is This is one mm-hmm. of those ones where I, Ideally you put everything in alphabetical order Just simpler mm-hmm. but I think you put everything In a franchise together Okay. So you put Evil Dead, Evil Dead Two, Army of well, Darkness, uh, They're like, all together.
1: Um, same with um, James Bond. Yeah, like you can. They all have different titles, but mm-hmm. you can sort of put hang a little extra placard within a different. I second, put, like I would section. just put James like Bond
0: a, like as a little. A yeah, little, here here's yeah. all the
1: James Bond movies together, so you don't yeah. have to like go well, all over the store. Here's what you do: you file the
0: different... them under 007. They're right at the top. Oh, there they are. They're under numbers, is before mm-hmm. the letter A. Boom, mm. 007 gets its own little section. Anyway, However, right. sometimes you're working for, this isn't a thing anymore, obviously, but like, if you're working for a big corporate entity like Blockbuster or Hollywood Video, you had no choice. And if their decision of where something goes makes no sense, you're not allowed to change it. Mm. Stupid. Anyway, uh, but that's a great list. Thank you for sending that in. I'm, and I'm embarrassed at some of the ones you mentioned that we forgot. Yeah, that's, the, that's on us. Yep. It's all on us. Yep, we are we are imperfect mm. in the extreme. What's our next letter? Here's a letter from
1: Christopher. Hello, Christopher. Hey, Christopher. Um, Good day, gentlemen. I just recently listened to your latest letters episode where a guy from British Columbia wrote in about the ethics of piracy, stating that he will be pirating Godzilla vs. Kong, among other films, because HBO Max, Peacock, and such aren't available in Canada. I wanted to write in because I am also from British Columbia. Okay. Hello from Victoria. Hello. And what that listener failed to point out is that while no HBO Max, Peacock, Hulu, and a handful of others aren't available up here, their exclusive content is almost always available to watch legally through other means. Ah. Most Hulu content usually either goes to our version of Amazon Prime Video or our Canadian exclusive streaming service, Crave. Crave, in particular, has a licensing deal with HBO that almost all HBO content ends up... Day and date with Crave and the Crave Plus HBO package, which is an additional $10 a month, costing $20 total. Okay, um, I'm guessing that's Canadian dollars. Yeah, I'm sure, uh, yeah. Uh, This was the case with Zack Snyder's Justice League, among others. Godzilla vs. Kong is not available on Crave, however, but it is available via, uh, via premium VOD at $30, as was Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. I felt this was worth pointing out because, in my mind, piracy isn't absolutely necessary in this case. Uh, To end this letter with an actual question, Mm. do you suppose that once the pandemic is over and the novelty of movie theaters being open again is is back, will people start to long for the days of being able to watch big-budget new releases day and date from their home? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thanks for all the great work you do, Christopher.
0: Um, Oh, so yeah. So uh, I think it was the most recent, uh, Mm. we've got mail before this, uh, we were asked a question about uh, movie piracy and Mm. whether if a movie is unavailable to you, it is still moral or ethical to pirate it, since otherwise you wouldn't be able to get it mm-hmm. at all. Uh, and there's, I, I, I used to be an absolutist about this, but I honestly think that there's a lot of gray areas in there. Mm-hmm. But I think what it boils down to is if you can get it legally, you should get it legally. Yeah. And if you can't get it legally at all, then it's understandable. But when the opportunity comes to get it legally, you should get it legally. Mm-hmm. Because we people do deserve to be paid for their work. Um, it sounds like there were some nuances about uh, Canadian streaming that we did not understand, and we would have incorporated that into our argument. Thank you for clarifying that. We really mm, appreciate yeah. it. Uh, secondly, will we be nostalgic for pandemic streaming? Mm. And, you know, it's really difficult to say exactly how this is going to all shake out when all is said and done. Uh, you know, the vaccines are uh, increasingly available, it's looking like. The, a significant portion of the population will be. I mean, it depends on your country, but in America, there's a, a significant amount of the country will be vaccinated within a few months, mm. uh, and then life. I don't think life will return to normal, but life will resume some elements of normalcy. I think a lot of people are still going to be pretty gung shy about uh, you know big public spaces full of crowds. Yeah, I think there's still going to be people who will sort of reflexively social distance. I'm sure I'm going to be one of them. Um, Mask usage I suspect will be I mean more optional But I Mm. think people are still going to do it more often Um, But uh, yeah One of the big industries that shifted dramatically Was uh, Movie distribution Because Mm. all the theaters closed down And a lot of studios Most notably Warner Brothers Which decided that in 2021 All of their major releases Would premiere day and date on HBO Max For no additional cost Mm. And also premiere in theaters And a lot of people were just like Wow that seems like it's jumping the gun And oh man when theaters open They are not going to do did, uh, it, uh, Godzilla versus Kong did fine In theaters it, Actually it's doing pretty good Like it's not as good as yeah, it probably would have done before yeah. But it's doing okay And well, it's, for me I think that means That this actually might be a model That works going forward And we, mm, might, we might not say goodbye to this altogether
1: No um, I'm, I'm, The old way is gone I'm I'm convinced that the old mm-hmm. way is gone. We're not going to be able to get back to what we had, uh, especially because a lot of the theaters are gone now. Yeah, a lot of them just closed. We yeah, have fewer screens now than we had before. So we're yeah. definitely not going back in any kind anything we uh, uh, had. And indeed, uh, as of this recording, we were learned just yesterday. Yeah, that uh, Pacific Theaters and ArcLight Theaters are out of business.
0: Yeah, they're
1: not going to be reopening. So that's you know uh, a, that, that's couple, not in that's, L.A. That's everywhere. Yeah.
0: Okay, so mm-hmm. if you're
1: not well, f- those are uh, ArcLight. I think is largely Los Angeles
0: only, I, but I think Pacific is larger than that, right? Yeah, I think Pacific um, is a nationwide. It's, that it's... is that is that's a big deal, especially for people in LA. Mm-hmm. The ArcLight is considered kind of a national uh, national uh, uh, local institution. Um, there are multiple ArcLights, but when people say the ArcLight, they mean the one in Hollywood. Mm-hmm because um, that's the one that has the Cinerama Dome, which is this giant, historically significant movie theater. It was built in the 60s. Yeah, it's it's, 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 a, a, mad, it's mad, a mad, 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 mad world premiered there. It's a
1: gigantic dome, and yeah. it's, it's 70 capable, so you can see just gorgeous it's a great on movie on a gigantic theater.
0: screen. It's a great movie theater, and I hope it doesn't go away. Um, but yeah, they they just announced that there's they're not coming back. Now, it's been argued that the Cinerama Dome in particular is a significant enough historical landmark that someone else will buy that up.
1: Like no, Netflix some,
0: will buy that or Amazon well, will buy that or Disney will buy that
1: or Disney may buy it but yeah. you'll you'll notice that you've noticed Netflix, Amazon and Disney uh Disney just like tripled down on their streaming platform.
0: Yeah, you're right probably they, they made good.
1: a lot of these big uh, press yeah. announcements. Yeah, we're going to keep on exploring Star Wars. We have 18 more Star Wars shows and movies. Yeah. Uh, in in the works now, and they're all going to be on Disney Plus. It's all yeah. like that's where they're going to be putting the bulk of their yeah. money.
0: This, Disney is mostly mm. like they've pretty much flat out said they're not that interested in theatrical anymore. Yeah, yeah. like they're, they, they're, they're, they, some of the movies, pretty movies pretty are big enough that, that they'll loud. they'll do it, but I don't mm. think they care as much as they as you as mm. people at home might think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so
1: there's we're moving into this period where I think it's going to be this hybrid sort of releasing where things are going to be available. In theaters, but a lot of the more mainstream stuff will mm. also be available almost immediately, mm. or maybe with like a few weeks mm. uh, padding
0: between mm. the theatrical release and the uh, streaming release. Or, or will be the thing that Disney does, which is we'll release them simultaneously, but at home you're going to pay more. Yeah. Uh, which honestly, if you've got well, like, like if you've got like five kids or something like that, that's a bargain. But it's, like, it's if a you're, bargain, if you're but only I one person it... paying thirty dollars to see a Disney movie. Mm. Doesn't make financial sense, does
1: it? I'd be interested to see if they do that with a film they start production on now. Because the ones they've done that for so far were already in the can. And they kind of had to just admit that they need to make some kind of money on these things. Otherwise, they'll take a bath.
0: Well, they're not releasing their numbers, though. They won't tell us exactly how much Mulan made. You know, they won't tell us exactly how much Raya made.
1: And and because of... um, the way streaming works, they don't have to. There's, yeah. uh, Netflix they don't, set that precedent. They well, they're don't not. Have to, well, they're not.
0: They don't have to answer mm-hmm. to uh, theater owners and say, "Here's how much these movies made." They mm-hmm. don't actually have to. They have no obligation. They're mm-hmm. vertically with streaming services. We're, get, we're getting into a lot of weeds here, but like with streaming services, studios are once again vertically integrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, not every studio has their own streaming service, but uh, the big ones mostly do. Um, vertical integration is what happens when you control the means of production and the means of distribution. And the means in between, mostly. Um, so basically, means you don't have the answer to anyone mm. to make and deliver your product. In this case, it's art, which some might argue is not a product, but to a corporation, it is. Uh, so back when that was vertical integration was the was the way of the land for a long, long time. Mm. Movie movie uh, studios either owned theaters or had ironclad contracts with various theaters, saying you will take this much of our products. You will take these big A-level movies you would have wanted, and you'll also take the movies that we're not proud of and won't make you any money, but you won't get the good movies unless you take those. In the 1940s, there was a Supreme Court case, uh, which was, I think, the United States versus Paramount. Yeah, And uh, Paramount decision. The Paramount decision, the Supreme Court ruled that vertical integration, <laughs> at least when it comes to cinema, is unconstitutional because it, uh, it's a form of monopoly. You're monopolizing the content. The theater owners no longer have any say in how they are running their business. So after that, theater owners were now free to only take the movies that they wanted and also show movies from multiple different studios, movies from overseas, movies from independent filmmakers, and that saw a big rise in international cinema Independent filmmakers. Also, movie studios suddenly had to be a little bit more careful about the movies that they made because they had to make something that movie theaters would actually want to distribute and not just <laughs> anything they happened to produce. Um, but now with streaming services, there's no movie theaters to answer to anymore. Hmm so they can do whatever they want and, and they don't and, have to tell you how they're doing.
1: Well, and if the studios own their own streaming services, yeah.
0: they don't have to vet it through some uh, uh some tertiary company. Exactly. So it's all on them. They can tell you they can tell you it's making money, they can tell you it's not. They can do whatever they want to do basically. It's mm-hmm. the wild west out there. And yeah, that's I'm still not sure that's constitutional, but um cuz the problem with there is there's a lot of self-dealing involved in that. Mhm. There was a court case a couple of years ago between the producers of Bones and 20th Century Fox, where 20th Century Fox, which owned the streaming service Hulu, Mm. uh, said, hey, here's Bones. It makes a fortune in advertising. It's a big, popular show. Well, why don't we just put that on Hulu, and then Hulu will be more popular because it has Bones on it. The producers had a contract saying that when Bones was available for distribution, reruns, home video, etc., that the studio had a responsibility to try to find the best financial deal. Mm. Instead, they found the deal that benefited themselves. And indeed, apparently, there was a contract signed between Fox and Hulu in which the people from Fox and the people from Hulu who signed it were the same people. Mm. It was literally self-dealing. Yeah. yeah, And it cost the makers of Bones a lot of money, and they won that lawsuit. So there's but a precedent the, for that. So why? But the law has now changed, so it's a little different. It's a little different, but who knows? So I think, I think we're going to run into some issues with this. And I'm curious to see how far people are willing to push some of these things. And we'll see how far VOD can really go in this well, direction. But I do agree the, that I don't think – I think the genie's out of the bottle now. I yeah. think we're just – Going to find some version. Different studios might do it a little differently, but yeah, the big movies, there's not gonna be a gigantic release window. There's we're we're gonna have more options. And in a lot of cases, this is actually a good thing. I know a lot of people uh, who have disabilities are actually very glad that they can get to see movies. Oh, because yeah, because a lot of movie theaters are not made for people with disabilities. They're just not. They they do a very, well, very poor job of it. Uh, just,
1: you know? Or just people who live in uh, cities that don't have movie theaters. Exactly. The- a lot of these screens are closing down. Uh, yeah. There was um, a little bit of a panic when uh, Steven Soderbergh released his film Bubble. Uh, yeah. uh, he- Bubble is actually a historically significant film because it was released on home video in theaters and uh, on streaming services, mm-hmm. such as they were back in the early 2000s, yeah,
0: same day. Uh,
1: all simultaneously. Like you could to do download that. it on iTunes uh, that day, and that was a novelty at the time. Yeah.
0: No, granted it wasn't and a big blockbuster, it an no, it's, film, it's, but it is noteworthy. No, it's a
1: little tiny independent film, and uh, everyone was a little bit afraid that Steven Soderbergh was revealing that uh, theaters could be bypassed. Well, you know what? Now they are. Well, and they can't. And uh, the the future I see is there's going to be repertory houses. There's going to be little independent houses. I think those are always going to survive through the cracks. They're not going to be gigantic business. No. But but you can can keep a theater alive in
0: a community that supports that theater. Exactly. That should be possible, yeah. But I
1: think what we're looking at is a a future where the studios do own the theaters again. Yeah. And the, the biggest studios will just be distributing their own projects. Product. So, if you want to see the Disney film, you go to the Disney theater. Yeah. You want to see the Netflix film, you go to the Netflix theater. I also and, agree with this is going to uh, happen. Yeah, this is it's, it's sooner than later. The idea of the, the what you and I grew up with was the idea of the multiplex. You go to one theater, they have sixteen screens, and you can see several movies there from different studios from yeah, from, di- from all over the place. Yeah. And I think that is something that uh, we're, we're going to see a lot. We're less gonna, of... Yeah,
0: is going to start to wither pretty quickly. Yeah. But uh, the the mm-hmm. the we'll find out. I think we're going to really see how things will shake out. Like kind of by the end of the year because mm. uh, I think some theaters are going to try to hang on, see how big the business can get again. Yeah. Uh, but you, you it's said, also possible that... To... Godzilla did well, but it was the only one. True, mm. true. Well, the thing is, is that it made more money than people expected. It also didn't, mm. probably didn't make as much money as it would have three years ago. Mm. So it's hard to say. It's hard to say. We're going to watch, be watching closely how this shakes out. Mm-hmm. For, and honestly, it might not be clear exactly how it's going to shake out for years. Mm. because it's a weird system. It's a weird
1: system, and it's moving yeah. quickly, and it the technology is, is changing so it much, is. and
0: yeah. and everybody's trying to
1: predict what the future will be. Uh, but yeah, Disney and Warner Brothers have put all of their money on streaming. Yeah. That's, they're, that's they're, where and it's going to go for those two we, big companies. We might
0: revere the theatrical experience. Maybe the filmmakers might reveal the theatrical mm. experience. There might even be some people at those corporations that revere the theatrical experience. Uh, overall, they care about money. Mm. And... A lot of people are like, oh, but like those movies make billions of dollars. Certain movies make billions of dollars. The majority of the movies that a studio makes does not. So you also have to factor in the possibility that most people only see a handful of movies in a theater every year. They see most of their movies at home. Hmm. So the question the studios are asking themselves is, is it really worth gambling... On having all of these movies we spend so much money on making over a billion dollars to justify the amount that we spent on them? Or is it worth putting out just enough premium content? I'm using the word the way they would on our streaming services that instead of paying like $15 a ticket to see three of our movies a year, people are spending $15 every month for 12 months out of the year. Mm. They make more money that way. So. It's a little cynical to think of it that way, but again, to them it's a business. It's what it's like. Anyway, yeah, they'll just chase,
1: they'll chase the dollar, and sadly, it's anyway.
0: the, so. The, so get back Hollywood,
1: to Hollywood's not a democracy. We
0: we we got off on a rant here because it's a long, complicated uh, a topic. But the original question was, will we be nostalgic for Dan date VOD? And I think our answer is, I don't think it's going to go anywhere, or it's never. It's might not overtake things right away, but I. think think we're not going to completely move away from it. Yeah. 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 Um, next letter.
1: Yeah, we'll see. Uh, next letter comes from Jeremy. Uh, Hello, Mr. Bibiani and Mr. McCool. I've been wondering how to ask this question for some time, and okay. since you may have some insight into the technology, tell me figure out I would try. Uh, I remember watching some Mystery Science Theater 3000 episodes and noticed that sometimes they seemed rather clear in their definition. I noticed it more with overdrawn at the memory bank. I kept thinking it was a strangely good resolution for a B movie. Hmm. Then I watched the newest little women at my friend's place on a brand new high definition TV. And I felt like the resolution was different from what I had seen in the theater. Hmm. And it sort of distracted me and I couldn't enjoy the movie as much as I had in the theater. Then my TV of 10 plus years decided to die on me and I went out to buy a new one and I ended up getting a 4K TV because it seems like that that's all I could find. But now whatever I watch, no matter how old the movie is, for example, I watched Saturday Night Fever recently, the picture looks like overdrawn at the memory bank or an early 2010 episode of Doctor Who. And I'm rather mm. distracted by the clarity. Okay, it you feels got like motion I'm, smoothing. Yeah, yeah. I feel yeah. like I'm missing a veneer that uh, the less yeah. defined pictures offered me at uh, to allow me to engage in the movie. I was wondering if you were able to explain what is going on, yeah. and if you or anyone you know has had similar feelings that I have. I feel like things have gotten a little too clear for my likings. Anyway, if you like to read my letter, thank you so much, and I greatly appreciate all the shows your gentlemen offer. Hope you're doing well. Give Luca a scratch behind the ear for me. Sincerely,
0: yours, Jeremy. I will definitely give mm. Luca a scratch behind the ear for you, Jeremy. Thank you for your question. And it's a great question, and it's a question I think we forgot to bring up more often, because mm. when... People started moving to widescreen TVs and high-definition and DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, this topic came up a lot, and then we got maybe got a little slack on it. But here's the, here's the gist of it. Uh, movies and... Actually, let me, let me start again. Mm-hmm. TVs have a variety of settings uh, in terms of their visual settings. Their brightness, mm-hmm. their tint, uh, their sharpness in, in a lot of cases. Uh, and when you get them out of the box, like when you just open them up, hmm. most televisions are set for a very particular mode of image uh, that is designed to look good in a store. Like mm-hmm. in really, really bright uh, fluorescent lighting, you're walking by and you're supposed to capture the eye making a wow. However, this particular uh, a look is not the way the original filmmakers intended. It's actually got a lot... A lot of it's boosted. The brightness is probably boosted, and it's probably got something that is often called motion smoothing, mm-hmm. uh, which basically gives every piece of the image this... You said to yourself, like, an early episode of Doctor Who, um, it makes it look like it has a higher frame rate, and it makes it look a little uncomfortably clear. Uh, higher frame rates... The way they work is most movies that we see are 24 frames per second. Yeah, uh, and the, the, we've become, we've grown accustomed to 24 frames per second as just mm. 24 images. You move them fast enough, 24 per second, it looks like movement. Mm. If oh, you, you add go. a bunch of frames to that, you're seeing so much more image between that one that one second of time that it's more image. It's more imagery than our brain is used to processing, and it looks weird to most yeah. people.
1: Well, uh, and 24 frames per second um, from what I remember from college Mm. uh, when I was studying these things was um, the minimum number of frames uh, that was required on a film strip that still looked like natural movement. Yeah. Uh, they they were just being economical, you know. They do not yeah. want to put put in too many because they could have shot sixty frames per second back right. in the silent era, but that was too much film. That's an yeah. actual F- physical
0: film. Film, film stock. takes up actual yeah. physical space, and there's only yeah. so much you could fit into a magazine at so the uh, time to plug into the uh, uh, and, camera. And they yeah. they
1: figured out that somewhere between twenty two and twenty six was good enough for the human eye. Yeah, a human eye can process more than that, but that's as much as they were willing to give up. And the actual frame rate you saw in the silent era was variable depending on how fast... Sometimes they were hand-cranked and yeah. they would be run at different
0: speeds. Yeah, because it didn't uh, really matter. Yeah. Uh, but once you had a synchronized sound, yeah. it had to be a consistent frame rate. Otherwise, the sound would go out of sync. So it needed to be 24 frames per second. It couldn't yeah, be 23 in... frames one second, yeah. 26 frames the next second. That was <clears throat> The the sound wouldn't work that way.
1: And that's film and that's high-definition video. Yeah. Um,
0: uh, and uh, But however, some European... Mm. Uh, markets use a system video system called PAL which is closer mm. to 30 frames per second like, and it's actually only
1: 25. Is it um, only 25? Yeah. I thought it was a little more than. Well, uh, gross it's just a yeah, little bit more um, and
0: the you and I can kind of notice it looks a mm. little different. Um, um, and
1: NTSC video is 30 frames per second. That must be what i um, and, and, and it's also HD is 30. Yeah.
0: Um, um, and there's... Um, and some video games have mm-hmm. a higher frame rate as well. Yeah, but, there's, um, there's HD...
1: Oh, you know what? There actually is a PAL that runs super fast. Like, that's it's, what I'm thinking it's like, super pal Uh, it's like a super pal that's like 50 frames per second
0: well in any case uh motion smoothing is a setting that a lot of tvs have that creates this like ultra crystal clear the semblance of having uh, ultra high frame rate what what they what it it
1: does is um it takes an it takes the image you know think of the frame rate and like the, the tiny change in between the two, two different
0: frames. Yeah. Well, so let's say let's say if, your hand is off to the and, side and now like you're waving so the uh, next frame it would be up a little bit. It would be up a little bit.
1: Now in 24 frames per second there wouldn't be anything in between those. You just have those two frames. Yeah. But if all of a sudden you're watching a film that can uh TV that can do like sixty frames per second, yeah. there's not gonna be a lot of like little bits of information in between those two frames. Mm-hmm. And they're using these smart artificial intelligence technologies to figure out what would go in there yeah. and artificially creating a digital image to smooth those two frames together.
0: Now, neither Whitney or I mm. are like tech guys. There's probably more elaborate terminology we can use to describe this and mm. probably we could be describing this a little bit more accurately than we are, but that's the gist of it. Mm. Here's what it boils down to, and this is what I recommend to every single person who has a high-definition TV, which is most people now. Uh, if you haven't already... Look online. You can Google it. Find your exact model TV. You know, you can probably mm. find it on the television itself, or on the back of it, or maybe if you have your original receipt or whatever. Uh, find your exact model TV, and then look for. I, I, I'm struggling to think of the exact wordage because it's been a while since I bought a new TV. But you should be able to Google the brand of your TV mm. and like the preferred video specs. And yeah. what I have found is that every time I've bought a new TV, I can go online to some AV forum or, or a really good high-end like uh, uh, home video website. And they will take all the major brands and they will say, okay, if you want to approximate the way a filmmaker actually intend, this is basically like the DVD you bought, the Blu-ray you're watching, the streaming service you're watching. If you want to see this the way that it's intended to look, your setting should be here. Your uh, brightness should be at, I don't know, 47. Your tint should be at 52. Your so on yeah, and so right. And that will vary from TV to TV. And that, that's what when the, in doubt, that's what the turn color, off, yeah, That's yeah. what the color bars are for. Exactly. And when in doubt, turn off motion smoothing. I have heard some horror stories mm. about TVs where that cannot be turned off. Oof. I refuse to believe that we live in a world where that's allowed. Uh, I hope that's not the case, mm-hmm. uh, but in any case, go to your, open your menu on your TV. You should be able to adjust the settings. You can just adjust them until they look right to you, but if you want them to be exact, if you want to make sure that like you're watching Citizen Kane the way Orson mm-hmm. Wells intended or watching Godfather the way Coppola intended, there, there is information online, mm-hmm. generally speaking, per TV or to, per model to get your settings so that they look right. Yeah. And it will probably be a little jarring at first. But you'll get used to it. What I love about these discussions is um, there is
1: always going to be assholes like us uh, who, who are sticklers for visual integrity. Sure. We, we want to be able to see a film in a different technology, if we're not going to be seeing it on a big screen, to kind of approximate what it originally looked like. And I've noticed the Criterion Collection uh, has been really, really good. About maintaining like film grain and mm. trying to maintain a lot of the visual texture of an original thirty-five millimeter film print or even sixteen millimeter film print, um, as the technology changes, sticklers like us have to keep like we, they keep us on our toes. Yeah, it's like oh, we invented motion smoothing. Wait, like no, but, we didn't what, agree to
0: that. You didn't ask for that. <laughs> Who asked for this?
1: And some people are really keen on that. They actually like the way motion smoothing looks. Uh, A lot of these uh, uh, TV shows, especially if you watch just like a baking show, they got these really super high definition cameras now Mm -hmm. that that are presented at like 60 frames per second. But that's not the same as Uh, motion smoothing. No, it's not. But when you pop in an old movie that runs at 24 frames a second to a lot of people, that looks a little weird. So they're actually going to want that new kind of smoothing technology.
0: They want, they want, uh, you're you're looking for visual consistency rather than visual accuracy. Exactly. Okay. and, uh, I can I can see th- I disagree with yeah, that, but I can see that yeah. yeah. And and indeed, um, it's the muddies the waters
1: are being muddied by certain filmmakers who are really keen on the new technologies. Peter Jackson, for instance, yeah. tried to he he and Ang Lee have been really trying to push. Uh high frame rate.
0: Yeah. Forty eight frames per yeah, second for, or more. Forty
1: eight or more. I think um wasn't one of the Hobbit movies done in like hundred and twenty eight frames a second. Was it really that much? Or am I thinking show? of um what's his name? Billy Long's walk. Long I think half-time Billy wa- Lin's half long, long halftime, half-time walk. walk. Yeah, I'm sorry film that was, yeah. film I just they they was shot home. in this like super high frame rate. Uh yeah, they insist that this is the way of the future and those two filmmakers. Um Uh, Did you see the Peter Jackson documentary? They shall not grow old. No. no. Yeah. uh, Peter Jackson made a documentary about uh, World War One soldiers. He found some old footage and rather than just restore it so you could see what it looks like, Mm. he uh, used like that motion blurring technology to make it look more like a modern film. So the motion was a lot Hmm. smoother. He tried to make it look more natural. He colorized it. Yeah. uh, And he hired like lip reading experts to figure out what some of the people were saying and then hired actors to dub in the voices. That sounds like an interesting experiment. Yeah, it's a tech experiment. But at the same time... You know, for, for people like us who are sticklers for the, sort of the way film looked, it is kind of erasing how we view those things and yeah. how they were viewed at the time and how people behaved in front of a camera. Everybody has a camera now, so they behave a little bit differently. And we can't pretend that, you know, back during World War I, mm. that people were
0: behaving that way. True. Yeah, yeah. people were very differently. Yeah. yeah, that's not true. Um, so in any case, I hope this explains mm. it. I, I know it got a little rambly in the middle there, but basically mm. the gist. Uh, Most TVs out of the box have these very specific factory presets that are not designed to replicate the theatrical experience of watching a movie or the Mm. specific intentions of any filmmaker in terms of how they wanted their movie to look in terms of brightness, motion smoothing, etc. What you're specifically describing sounds like you're really distracted by motion smoothing, so go into your menu, turn that off. It might be called something a little different depending on your brand. should be able to look that up pretty easily but generally speaking go to some av side look up your exact brand of television there should be someone out there who has put together the ideal settings in order Mm. to approximate exactly what you would see in a theater and i highly recommend doing that but for the love of god if you can i highly recommend turning motion smoothing off even if you do think it's kind of cool, if it, it's really not what filmmakers intended. Yeah. It's really, really not. And again, you can watch a movie any way you want, hmm. uh, but if you care about the way filmmakers intended it to look, which, again, they work their asses off to make it look exactly that way, so I highly recommend checking the movie out in that fashion, regardless of screen size, at least to get the color timing right. <laughs> um, yeah. Hmm. So, anyway, hopefully, hmm. hopefully that clears it up. Thank All
1: you. Right. Uh, here's a letter from Jacob.
0: Hi, Jacob. Hi, Jacob.
1: Uh, Greetings from the North Country. The North Country? uh, Iceland? It's uh... a. I don't know. Well, I, there are many countries north of um, there, you this You know one. What? We're just going to move on. Wait right.
0: I apologize for, for winning. Uh,
1: don't you ever apologize for me. I, I can embarrass myself on my own. And um, you do. Uh, I recently was having a conversation about The Twilight Zone with my brother, hmm. who is going to school for film and television. And it really got me thinking, and I wanted to share some ideas with you and get your thoughts. Okay. Let me say right off the bat that I love The Twilight Zone. Yeah. And fully respected for what it is and its impact on genre and television history as a whole. So many people in the film and television world have cited as a partial influence on what they do now. That being said, my question is this, and please forgive the blasphemy. Hmm. Is the Twilight Zone overrated? (gasps) (gasps)
0: Excuse me. (laughs) Sorry,
1: Sorry, you okay there? I
0: think I just died.
1: (laughs) I've recently been watching Alfred Hitchcock Presents on Peacock, Mm. because what else is on Peacock? And I... (laughs) And I had no idea that this brilliant anthology came first. I always assumed that the Twilight Zone was somewhat like the first of its kind, Mm. and then Hitchcock got into the game because of it, and now I find that it existed years before the Twilight Zone. There are also so many great episodes here with great guest stars, writers, and directors all hosted by the master himself, yet the show is rarely talked about anymore. The same could be said of Tales from the Dark Side or Tales from the Crypt, both great really talked about or given much credit uh, in the genre as the Twilight Zone. Why do you suppose this is? Tales from the Crypt is an absolute genius. yet rarely do historians or books talk about it. It's always the Twilight Zone this, the Twilight Zone that. The mere fact that I feel guilty for even posing the question uh, shows the power the show yields, yet it Mm. wouldn't be the first nor the last of this sort of thing. So why is it the only one we continue to talk about? I'm curious to hear your thoughts, as I know you are fellow Mm. horror anthology enthusiasts. Hope to hear from you,
0: Jacob. Uh, That's a great question, Mm. and there's a lot of TV history in that. The first part of this is, was the Twilight Zone... Unique in its premise and execution And the answer to that is no Um, Before (sighs) Television when it was first created The programming was very very different A lot of it was live initially And there were Mm. a lot of live Sort of plays that were on TV. Um, And as a result, a lot of the TV programming that people saw was essentially in an anthology format. There might be a few television series that were consistent here and there, but there was a lot of variety shows or people just doing various entertainments on TV. Or, you know, on Thursday, there would be the Captain Crunch Power Hour, and uh, you would see, like, you know, a TV movie that was based on a popular play or maybe it was adapted from a popular book. The first uh, adaptation of a James Bond movie was uh, a TV movie adaptation of Casino Royale starring Peter Lorre as the chief. You can find that online, by the way, it's really good. Um, so anthology storytelling wasn't that new. Alfred Hitchcock presents was a huge hit television series that did mm-hmm. predate the twilight zone. Uh, and, a lot of it was based off of the Hitchcockian mold of suspense. There were a lot of adaptations of short stories about people trying to get away with murder and other forms of sort of ghoulish delights. Um, that kind of anthology story, the ones that sort of focus on a uh, crime or the supernatural, a lot of that comes from radio. Yeah. A lot yeah. of that comes from radio and you would see a lot of radio. I'm trying to think of like some of them was, there was the whistler. I have a few episodes of the whistler on an iPod in the mm-hmm. car um, but, yeah, you would hear there's listen a, up every, every Friday or whatever night it was, and you would hear a new tale of suspense and terror. There is, um, I know there's a lot of websites where you can get MP3s
1: of a lot of those old uh, radio shows, and they're actually pretty exhaustively cataloged online. And you can get them for free, because they're all in the public domain, uh-huh. um, and they're Great. A lot of them are
0: great. There
1: are so many good old yeah. time radio dramas back from the day. You want
0: just you want just a mountain of free good storytelling <laughs> that you can listen to anytime. Yeah. Look up old radio shows. There's yeah. some. Ama- I mean, you're gonna run into some racist ones. You're just gonna that's gonna happen. But
1: uh, they were made in the 40s. Yeah. There's yeah. there's
0: some racism. There's some sexism. There's some other isms mm-hmm. that just stink. But. Uh, not all of them have that, or at least not overtly. And some of them are really fascinating, mm-hmm. well written, excitingly acted. There's some yeah, good look, shit.
1: Out look there. up the uh, the Agnes Moorhead rendition of Sorry Wrong Number. Where,
0: oh, I don't know that where, one. Where yeah.
1: Agnes Moorhead just like goes completely insane oh. on mic. <laughs> she over, overhears a a misconnected telephone call.
0: Yeah.
1: that somebody's plotting a murder,
0: and she's uh, she, she's bedridden and mm. she can't go anywhere, and so. Yeah, it's just this mountain of suspense. Can she do anything Mm. from her bedside with only a telephone Mm. and nobody believes her? It's a great story.
1: Great story. And yeah, there's a really great Agnes Moorhead audio
0: version of that. She was one of the great actors, period.
1: Yeah, a lot of those uh, anthology and a lot of the sort of genre anthology, like the, the science fiction and the horror. Mm. Uh, it reaches into radio, but it also reaches into a lot of the pulp novels at the time, yep. which uh, were eventually turned into the comic books at the time, hence yeah. you know, the direct line into Tales from the Crypt, uh, which wasn't until the 1980s. But yeah, that was uh, all influencing one another. So yeah, Rod Sterling was just taking uh, something that was already pretty popular. Yeah. Now, um, why is it we talk about The Twilight Zone? Well, it's a punchy title, isn't it?
0: It's a great time. Uh, it's
1: it's a great, and you know a lot of the the iconic stories uh, were. Just really well told and really well remembered. And mm. a lot of it has to do with syndication. Uh, yeah. The Twilight Zone was one of those shows that uh, everybody wanted. It was popular, so yeah. we got to see a lot of it in reruns. Not necessarily yeah. the same case with something like Alfred Hitchcock Presents. It all had mm. to do with television contracts.
0: Well, that's a big part of and,
1: it. Uh, and also, you know, same with Tales from the Crypt. Mm. Uh, it's really frustrating that HBO, who's you know it was HBO Go, HBO Now, HBO Max, they kept on keeping tales from the crypt from us for some reason. Yeah,
0: they still don't have last I checked. Mm. They don't have Tales from the Crypt on HBO Max. Tales from the Crypt was like HBO's signature television series yeah, it was for quite a few years. And it
1: was it, yeah. I think it was when um Oz and the Sopranos came out that yeah. they decided to sort of Shift gears into like more uh, edgy prestige television. Yeah,
0: but it was still they were still were selling the DVDs. Like they were still no, proud no. of it for a while. They had distribution rights. I don't know. Maybe there's something yeah, complicated. Yeah, and, and but, yeah, it was a
1: huge hit. Yeah. yeah maybe there is some. kind Maybe it's one of those things because so many different people were involved. Yeah. That it'd be difficult to get them all royalties, whatever it
0: is. Um, I do want to say regarding the Twilight Zone, and I think that's a huge, huge part of it is just uh, availability. And there's yeah. a lot of really, really amazing TV shows, books, music, whatever that we don't know about and we don't see because it is not readily mm. available which is another reason why you know i think it's important that mm. if a studio has a streaming service put it all on there mm. we can't get it otherwise like we can look for it in piracy but there's no guarantee we'll find it like mm. and a lot of people don't know to look for these things so they're not going to search piracy to find these things so put it on the put mm. on your service for love of god <laughs> um So that's definitely part of it. However, there are a few other factors that make The Twilight Zone a significant uh, television series uh, on its own. Uh, A big part of it was Rod Serling himself, who, when The Twilight Zone premiered, Rod Serling was considered arguably the great artist in television. He had written a series of TV movies which were award winners, groundbreaking, dealt with serious issues in a way other television uh, wasn't. He did uh, movies like Requiem for a Heavyweight. He did movies like Patterns. Uh, These were big deal motion pictures, and he was becoming a household name himself. Mm. So Alfred Hitchcock was already Alfred Hitchcock when he did Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Rod Serling was moving into sci-fi, and what was interesting was... Alfred Hitchcock kept doing Alfred Hitchcock stuff. Rod what? Serling was doing hard-hitting, serious dramas. What? And then he moved to sci-fi. Mm. He, didn't, he didn't, like, graduate from sci-fi mm. to serious dramas, which was what people thought it was. And, in fact, there's actually an interview with Rod Serling, I think it was the night Twilight Zone premiered, on television, in which he was asked, why are you giving up serious storytelling? Mm. And then you watched The Twilight Zone and you realize that he did not yeah, And in fact, what he was trying to do and what he did more successfully than many other people was he took science fiction and fantasy storytelling, which at the time was popular, but typically seen as something sort kid of stuff, yeah. kid stuff, culty stuff, you know, guilty pleasure kind of stuff. Yeah. And he made hard hitting, socially relevant, politically conscious science fiction. Uh, mainstream. Hmm. And it, it, he didn't do it alone. Obviously, he wrote a lot of the episodes himself, but he didn't do it alone. There are a lot of brilliant writers in the Twilight Zone, a lot of brilliant storytellers and directors and actors. But it was his show. He was his. He was executive producer, and he is he, he, that show and everyone who collaborated hmm. on it has a lot to do with making sci-fi and fantasy more mainstream than it had been before. Uh, so I do think that that's significant. Again, you can't give it all the credit. Outer Limits was on like four years afterwards and kept that torch going strong. And uh, There's uh, a lot of really, really good shows and movies that were doing something similar, but Twilight Zone was a phenomenon largely for that reason.
1: Have have you watched... We're set to review uh, the Steven Spielberg film, The Terminal, for our next episode oh, yeah. uh, of Critically Gun. Have you watched it yet? Not yet, no. Uh, there's there's a, a scene early on where somebody makes a reference to the Twilight Zone. It's like, mm. you know, the Twilight Zone. like uh, Terror at 30,000 feet and Talking Tina and the Zanty Misfits. And uh, a security guard sitting next door says, Zanty
0: Misfits was at our limits. That's cute. It's really cute. Yeah. Steven Spielberg himself got his start on an anthology series, Night Gallery. That's right. That was, I think that was his first TV game, And that was a Rod Serling joint. Yeah, Rod Serling. After he did The Twilight Zone, he ended up doing another anthology horror-themed hmm. series called The Night Gallery. Uh, which is not as well remembered, but a lot of really good episodes. Yeah. yeah. Um, we keep coming
1: back to The Twilight Zone. I think it's been rebooted four or five times now. It's yeah. never been quite as good as the original. I've never the, seen the a reboot. The pretty good. Well, the um, movie has some
0: highlights. And the
1: movie has some highlights. The movie has some real um,
0: highlights yeah tragic um, tragic production but some the, of the bits came out really the, the
1: paramount plus version the one that the, the mm. jordan peele did is awful oh no i haven't <laughs> seen any of it really, really oh bad. that's too bad um,
0: that sucks
1: yeah like uh they redid uh terror at Twenty Thousand feet but they changed the premise where um the guy's on a plane and it turns out the podcast he's listening to is like predicting what's gonna happen five minutes from now
0: okay that's that's Not a bad premise, but that's not Terror for 20,000 feet. No, it's yeah. it's completely different, and, and okay. it ends up going. Into I don't mind a you putting a twist on an old stuff, yeah, yeah, put a new twist on it, fine, but don't right. call it Terror 20,000 feet. Like, it's kind of rude. No, yeah, it's, oh. it's it. They got a lot of like
1: very famous people to work on it, but it's not, not
0: a good yeah, well, thing But I guess,
1: but yeah, I, there's, there's I, a lot do, of, yeah, I do maintain that one of the reasons uh, the reasons a lot of TV shows stay in the popular consciousness. Is because we have access to them. Yeah, I'm wondering yeah. if uh, the streaming, the streaming world. I'm not sure if that's going to help or hinder that because there's mm-hmm. just so
0: much to choose from. If things are going to yeah. get lost, even people, if they are people available, people seem to be going back to the stuff that they already know. Like, um, yeah, yeah. like oh, we'll, we'll we'll be able to watch all of The yeah. Office. What again? Yeah. <laughs> what other shit? Like, hey, look, Friends. Let it, so what? You, you've seen yeah. it, right? Um,
1: but uh, and this was a big issue. I remember in conversations about uh, Looney Tunes yeah uh a lot of the the uh, cartoon shorts that uh, people our age were raised on were uh only the ones that were sort of approved by the studio or like part of this little small uh selection
0: yeah. of
1: the broad termite terrace catalog
0: well relatively small there was still yeah. a lot of them but like it was there was a lot that we were yeah seeing. it's, it's
1: yeah. like we saw about a, you know like 75 to 100 of them but there were hundreds to choose from yeah so as such we got to know Chuck Jones really really well yeah and that's fine because Chuck Jones shorts are brilliant he's a genius yeah but we didn't see Bob Clampett as much yeah Uh, you know a lot of the later Frizz Freeling stuff was kept out of the loop uh And a lot of it had to do with TV contracts. And that's what we ended up talking
0: about. And and you and I are both, and this is one of the things I love about working with you, is that Mm. you and I are both really big on, yeah, we Mm. talk about everything that's mainstream because people are talking about it. It's hitting a lot of audiences, and it's important to speak about popular things critically because Mm. it's having the largest, widest impact. However, a really important job of any critic, any art critic, is to shed light on things that aren't getting noticed, or worse are getting lost to history. So you and I are big proponents of digging things up that no one else gives a crap about (laughs) and the hopes and the hopes that maybe they're good. And some, Mm -hmm. we've discovered a lot of things, especially on our show canceled too soon where we focus on TV shows that failed. Mm -hmm. Some of which are popular enough to have a cult, but most of which are not, Mm -hmm. um, and we're we're looking at that to see if it's worth checking out because I know I hear a lot of people like, "Oh, I don't want to see this TV show that failed." And I'm like, because like yeah, I want to get super invested in it. I'm like, "But you're missing something really cool." And, and some was... of them have a perfectly good ending. <laughs> the, yeah. Some of them don't like end on a cliffhanger like a lot of them don't. Like they're perfectly fine. So, in any case, uh I'm big on that. But anyway any case, yeah, yeah, Twilight Zone, a lot of it is syndication. It genuinely was a very good show. There's a couple of duds in there. No mm. one's pretending otherwise, but like um but it has a bit more cultural significance than I think it's something people remember. I I did a lot of research on The Twilight no. Zone. It was my favorite show growing up. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think we'll oh. talk one more. All right. Here's a letter from RJ. Hi, um, RJ. Hey,
1: hello, Bi- hello, and Whitney. Hope you're well. I wanted to talk to you about your review of If Anything Happens, I Love You, and more oh, specifically, yeah. how you watched it. That, that was one of the uh,
0: Oscar nominated animated shorts. Yes. And you and I both did not care for it. It's a very mm. intensely emotional short. Uh, and you and I both thought it handled its subject matter rather, again, rather, again. I- rather inelegantly.
1: rather rather inelegant yeah we, we I think I used the term cheap shot we, but, um, we, we didn't care for it yeah um I personally loved the film and okay. did consider it one of 2020's best and whilst I can I can see where you guys are coming from in certain areas there's one thing I can't quite wrap my head around okay this is partly because I spaced out for a second and thought you guys were still talking about genius loci. But which is another one of the shorts. Mm. Uh, but the part I didn't understand is where Bibbs referred to the emotional climax of the film as a twist. For the sake of consistency for listeners, I won't say what it refers to. However, I would like to discuss your interpretation of that as a twist. Mm. For the next few, uh, for few weeks or so before this film came out in November, I knew exactly what the film was about from articles and social media. Ah. And even if I hadn't, the opening line of the synopsis on Netflix UK explicitly states what happens. Of course, I can't vote for what happens on US Netflix. Right. Uh, So as far as I understood, this aspect of the film was common knowledge and not a spoiler at all. And on both times watching it, I rewatched it shortly after a review, I can't for the life of me see how it functions as a twist. Mm. So what I wanted to ask was, did you know anything about this movie before you saw it? Did you watch it on Netflix or was it a screener? Because the only way I can make sense of it is if you went into it blind, uh, but I don't want to assume that and just thought I would ask. Uh, To be clear, I don't think your criticisms are invalid at all. Mm. I see what you mean, but personally, I don't think it... I don't think it feels sensationalist in the slightest. I actually think it's done very naturally, feeling haunting and sobering, helped by the knowledge uh, that the filmmakers had spoken to several parents who had been through this and consulted a charity dedicated to this sort of thing. Uh, Whether you did or didn't know, it made me think about how our expectations shape the way we experience certain films. Bibbs has often talked about trying not to anticipate films so you can remain indifferent. I've heard a lot of people who prefer to know just a single thing about a film before they watch it. On paper, the latter theory seems like a good way to approach films, but sometimes I think it can lead to a misunderstanding of what a film actually is or is trying to do, and it can throw you off if you're not prepared at least a little bit for what what it's going to give you. Uh, so when I watched If Anything Happens I Love You a sense of dread I had throughout found it a lot I found it a lot easier to immerse myself in the emotion of the piece I'm wondering now uh, if you had felt the same way you did if you had known it uh, what is your take on that thank you for your content love you both sincerely RJ
0: RJ thank you so mm. much and again we're we're happy you enjoyed the film mm. um, and you actually bring up some really exciting points about mm. how uh, storytelling works and how the information that we bring into mm. Any work of art affects mm. that work of art. Marshall McLuhan has written about this really elegantly in a lot of his works, um, about how you, if you watch or witness a work of art in a vacuum, mm. your experience will be dramatically different. Uh, one of the examples he used was, here is a painting uh, by, I think it was, it was, here's a painting by Claude Monet. Mm. And then he'll show you the same painting. Here's the last painting Claude Monet did before he died. Oh no, that, that was, it was Van Gogh. It was Van Gogh. No. Okay, but regardless, the sim- similar premise. Yeah. Right. It's like one. All of a sudden, the the thing feels more dramatically important rather than just here's a painting mm. and here's the last thing someone painted before they died. All of a sudden, you're looking for a little bit more meaning, aren't you? It's 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 innate. You can't help but be a little tainted by that. Not tainted, tinted. Um, so. What you're aware of going into something absolutely affects how you're going to view it. If you know the ending going in, you're going to be waiting for that ending. I I, I know about me. I don't know about Whitney. I actually did go into this uh, short film blind. Did you know anything about this short? going? Not not a thing. Uh, and, And indeed, that's... That's my philosophy as a filmmaker. Um, yeah. As a film critic, or a filmmaker, <laughs> film critic. It's twelve twenty four in Sorry, the morning. I, I, I say it a lot. We're, we're, we're uh, that's my
1: philosophy as a film yeah. critic. Yeah. I try to go in as blind as possible. Some like bigger blockbusters that are advertised to death, and yeah. like we have to write about. They're billboards it's, everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's, it's
0: impossible to go it's, in. It's hard to go anything.
1: in uh, totally blind. Also. um... I don't get to experience it anymore, but I used to very much value uh, the preview experience—going to a theater and seeing all of the coming attractions. It was yeah. actually a very exciting part of going to the movies, and that's something that I have completely missed out on as a critic. When you go to yeah. a film screen, uh, a press screening, they don't show you
0: previews. Yeah, it's, I, I've seen it like mm. once, like yeah, they've and, ever done so, a preview.
1: Sometimes they like, and really, really rarely, they'll they'll attach one because that's the way it's going to be released theatrically. Yeah, it's like important. it's attached to the head of the movie.
0: Yeah. But 99% of the time they don't do that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, And I think this philosophy allows uh, me as a critic to watch films uh, on their terms. Yeah. If an advertising uh, campaign or an anticipation machine or even a simple single paragraph blurb is needed to make sure I have enough context to appreciate that film differently, Mm -hmm. then I think the film isn't doing it uh,
0: all of its own heavy lifting. No, the film isn't providing the context. Mm. Because you can't guarantee that anyone watching a movie or reading a book or whatever, but just for the sake of argument, we'll stick with movies. You can't guarantee that every single human being that watches a movie will have done the supplemental reading. Exactly. Will have seen the trailer, will have read the blurb. You can't guarantee that. And as a result, it behooves art critics to focus on the experience that will be universal. Now, again, you can't always do that. Sometimes you have seen the trailer. Sometimes you happen to have read the book it's based on in advance. You can't control that, Mm -hmm. but it is something that we try to focus on. And when you witness a film without knowing anything about it Mm -hmm. going in, you'll see that the way films are constructed to reveal information is very deliberate. Now, sometimes movies are very straightforward, just a sequence of events, no twists. In the case of If Anything Happens, I Love You, I'm, I'm not going to ruin the, the, the movie, but I'm going to just try to guide you through the structure here. We see a, a married couple, and they're incredibly sad, and they're incredibly angry, but they're not talking to each other. And,
1: and there's th- no dialogue in the piece. None. And...
0: Uh, they're incredibly sad, they're incredibly angry, They're not talking to each other, and it quickly becomes clear that they are grieving. The way that the movie parcels out information, first you know they're grieving. Then you realize who they're grieving for. Then you realize why they're grieving. Mm. And the why is an incredibly dramatic kick in the pants. Um, Whether you find that effective or not, that's a matter of taste. But uh, you're not supposed to know the why at the beginning of the story. Unless you've read the blurb. But again there's no guarantee you will have. So if you haven't. Mm. Get any experience. L- let me put this in another context. Let me give this a movie that everyone knows. Or a lot of people know. Mm. Uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. <laughs> if you've never. S- if you've seen the trailer for it. If you know the gist of it. If you've seen it before. We all know. Mm. That it's the st- Story of Terminator, but instead of a human going back in time to save someone from a killer robot, this is about a killer robot who goes back in time to save someone from another killer robot. And the hero killer robot looks just like the bad guy in the first movie. played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Hmm. That was the premise. A lot of the trailers gave that away. The movie is structured as though you don't know that. Yeah. And you can tell because it's pretty... The moment when that's revealed is a big reveal It's a big reveal. They both go back in time. We see the Terminator go back in time, beat the crap out of people. It's no evidence that it's not an evil Terminator. Robert Patrick, the actual evil Terminator, goes back in time. We see him beat up a guy, but we don't explicitly see him kill anybody. And there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that he's the villain. Until both Terminators, and we don't know Robert Patrick is a Terminator yet, are at opposite ends of a hallway, and John Connor is caught in between both of them. He's caught in because... between both of them, and he looks behind him and he sees the Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator, and he realizes that everything his mother told him is true, and that this Terminator is out to kill him. Both Robert Patrick and Arnold Schwarzenegger raise their guns, mm-hmm. and then this is the big moment Arnold Schwarzenegger tells John Connor to get down uh-huh. because he's there to save him. That's built up as this amazing, dramatic reveal. <laughs> oh my God, the bad guy is the good guy this time? Holy crap! That's amazing! Imagine if you'd had a chance to experience that without seeing the trailer. Because if you have seen the trailer, it's mm. kind of a lot of buildup for something we already know. Yeah i wouldn't call it a letdown because they don't spend too much time mm. it's not like you're waiting the whole movie like in terminator genesis where they gave away like who the bad guy was and you have to wait half the movie for the movie to catch up but that's an
1: issue mm. and it's getting more complicated as well because it's not just a matter of a single blurb or a, a preview uh, Now yeah. it it's all reliant on what we know from press releases yeah and uh i i can guarantee you that um uh, a lot of those Avengers films wouldn't be a, wouldn't be big hits if we didn't know if there was a next one or what the next yeah. one was going to be. A lot of people yeah. are anticipating
0: what the next one is going to be. A lot mm. of people know what the next four or five are going to be yeah. in order. Yeah, we there's there's a general sense that, mm. oh, I need, even if I'm not super interested in the superhero, mm. I need to see the next Ant-Man because it's going to tie into Doctor Strange or something. Yeah, like this, something, this, it's know? an
1: episode and a bigger thing and I would yeah. know
0: what the episodes are. So yeah. uh,
1: now this whole anticipation complex is... And we're not really... Well, I don't want to say we're not looking at them as individual films, but a lot of people aren't. A lot of people are yeah. seeing them as a small cog and a bigger super narrative. Which they are. Yeah. Which, undeniably, yeah. I think they are. And, yeah. and, and that's a way to make movies, whether yeah. or not that's brilliant or uh, anathema to cinema is a matter of debate. <laughs> it, but, can uh, it, yeah, it can be both. Yeah,
0: it can be both simultaneously. It can. It can, be, it can yeah. be absolutely brilliant and also maybe not a good thing overall. Mm. It can be both.
1: Yeah. Uh, When it comes to uh, that specific short, though, um, I I do think that uh, the way it's presented me, without any kind of context, I did feel like it was uh, was a cheap shot. It it felt like a cheap shot. It felt like far too sudden, dramatic, and violent a thing that uh to lay in place with the tone of the rest of the thing which exactly. was actually very kind of sweet and sentimental and yeah
0: and then uh, the shock value the sh- in, is yeah. just really jarring it's, in a way that felt in and, it I mean, i'm sure it feels everyone, really cheap
1: and it felt really cheap
0: I'm, I'm sure every single person making that movie i mean I, mm-hmm. maybe not everyone but i'm sure theoretically every single person making that movie meant the absolute best mm-hmm. and they were trying to tell a story but like you can illuminate this thing without making the reason why we're there some kind of big reveal. And again, Mm -hmm. if they expect everybody to know, I don't think that's a wise decision creatively. Uh, We can have that conversation if you want, but I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't think it is. Um, But this is, this is one of the reasons why I have of late in the last five years or so uh, tried to really look at the way that we Disseminate information about movies and media before we see it. In mm. um, particular, and, and not just information, but the level of excitement mm. and the level of foreknowledge that we start taking for granted. And we've seen this bite people in the butt a couple of times. Like, oh, yeah, well, I've, I've listened to all of these fan theories and I know exactly what's going to happen in the next Star Wars. Mm. And then if that doesn't happen, I mean, it's possible that it could be so awesome that you just love it, but mm. you had the movie in your head and now all of a sudden here's something else and the movie in your head will never exist. Yeah. Whether, that, whether you're still capable of enjoying the movie or not is another matter, but that's bound to impact the way you process the movie again. And I think what we should try to do is we should try to be as open-minded to whatever we get, and appreciate the movie for what it is, not what it was advertised as, not what the, the podcast that we listened to suggested it might be, just whatever the hell it is. And that mm. way, if it defies our expectations in a good or a bad way, we can acknowledge that mm. and we can talk about that and we can get excited for it if it's amazing. We can talk about it if it sucks. But I think that's super important. Mm. Um, and again, you can't always go into something without any foreknowledge. But I do recommend trying it if you can. I know, I know, foreknowledge is fun. I like previews. Right. I, previews are fun. Previews are an Absolutely. art form in and of themselves. But sometimes I'm better off not knowing.
1: I I did an experiment with myself once uh, back when I was uh, well. I mean, I'm still obsessed with Star Trek: The Next Generation. But back when it was like happening live. Yeah. Uh, this this was why, you know, in the era of VCRs, and I would tape the episodes, and I would watch it more than once before the next episode would air the following week. Yeah. I was just. Just because I wanted to enjoy it. I wanted to get to know the show really, really well. And, um, I would always pay attention to the bumpers, like what's coming next, all the ads that would come up throughout the week on TV, leading up to the uh, next next generation, Star Trek, the next generation, Wesley will die, you know, (laughs) whatever whatever they got. Um, and uh, they they pull that crap multiple times. Oh, one one member of the crew will die, and then it's like some technical thing, like a hologram yeah. of them is shot.
0: Yeah, it's uh, always it's always crap. Or this episode, <laughs> Mulder and Scully will kiss in a dream. <laughs> They'll kiss other people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was in the past on the yeah, Titanic, so, and it didn't really but, happen. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I, I I did an experiment for myself on myself once, where I uh, whenever I saw bumpers start to come up, I would <sighs> like mute the television and close my eyes and deliberately not watch. Yeah. Like I, I wanted to know nothing about what was coming up and you know what? I found it to be a much more satisfying experience. My anticipation was a little different. I couldn't get excited about scenes I knew were coming, but I felt a little bit more engaged with the show on a story level, which Mm -hmm. was a little, a little bit different. I could like appreciate the writing a little bit different. Yeah.
0: You can, because again, people, they, Mm -hmm. they don't know when they're, we're writing a story, when they're writing a script for a movie, TV show, whatever. They don't know what's going to be in the trailer. Yeah, they can guess, but they don't know. Mm. Um, There's something I've I've written about this. I think that article has not been stricken from the internet because that's how the internet works. But um, Mm. I called it the Genesis Effect after Terminator Genesis, Mm -hmm. uh, where you write a story that is so predicated on a twist that maybe you should have predicted that a trailer is going to have to give it away because otherwise there's nothing to talk about in a trailer, Uh, and as a result you might run the risk of having the movie pre spoiled. Uh, even though you've written the movie out as though these are going to be big surprises. That's a serious danger. But generally speaking, they don't know what scenes are going to show up in the trailer. They don't know what line mm-hmm. of dialogue is going to show up in the trailer. And the people putting in together a trailer or a promo for a future episode, they can completely lie to you. <laughs> they can tell you that this character will die or whatever mm-hmm. like that, and that they won't. <laughs> they're not doing that. They're just to make it seem as exciting as possible. Like, um, what was I just watching? I was watching something... Um, I was watching some preview. Oh, I was watching a preview of Sherlock uh, Sherlock Holmes, the Robert Downey Jr. movie, because we oh, were yeah. doing a podcast about the very sherlock uh, versions. And um, they had re-edited the trailer uh, for the first Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes story to suggest uh, that two completely different scenes between Robert Downey Jr. and um, Rachel McAdams were happening at the same time mm. in such a way that suggested that Robert Downey Jr. Was like watching her undress or something. And it's like, no. that's not in the movie. Mm. That's not a thing, but they edited the trailer to suggest that it was because it made it seem more salacious and therefore mm. might make people want to see it more. But if you're expecting that, you're not going to find that. So in any case, you can't, the other problem with that, that I will say this before we, before we wrap things up is, um, your experiment you did with next generation Mm. presupposes an interest in watching the show. Yeah. And that's the trick is the reason why we have Mm. promos, previews, press releases, blurbs on Netflix is if you know nothing about it, it's supposed to get you interested Mm. until you know why to watch it. Um, And that's a tricky line. And sometimes they give away too much and end up hurting the story. Revealing surprises Are not supposed to be revealed mm-hmm. Telling the story in a way That the storytellers Didn't originally want it To be in uh, in their intention But on some level You do need to find out About something You can't just randomly Click stuff all the time We're human And we want to follow You know Our interests and our passions. Yeah. So That's A lot of that's word of mouth A lot of that's podcasts Or whatever But it's it's imperfect You can't do it perfectly But it's a pursuit It's an ideal You can't always live up To your ideals But the point is You try So for me I try to go in With knowing as little as I can Most of the time
1: It's actually kind of embarrassing when I'm talking to my wife, mm. it's like I have to review X films for this week. Yeah, and uh, she'll ask me what's that one about, and I just have to sort of sheepishly She's like, I don't know. I, I haven't <laughs> I haven't looked into like the actual story. I want a, a
0: title a, and like a the title, running time. yeah, a t- title,
1: running time, and country of origin, and that's kind of like all I got a lot of the time. Yeah, so it's I just have to kind of find out as I go. And yeah.
0: and then, and I, then I think they'll tell you.
1: I think that's healthy, but that's also like a really uninteresting way to have a conversation about movies. Yeah, with people who watch previews and know that kind of thing going into yeah. see a film.
0: Anyway, it, nothing's perfect, but uh, this is this is what we've boiled down to. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that is it for we've got mail this week. Thank you so much. Really awesome letters this week. Yeah. Like I mean they always are, but like this is a really interesting, you know, array of hard-hitting topics and I loved it. So thank you so much to everybody who wrote in. We think you're amazing. Mm. Uh, If you want to write in for a future episode, we don't have time to get to all our letters because as you may have noticed, we're talkers. (laughs) It's it's a good thing too. We have podcasts. (laughs) Got to fill the air sometime. Uh, But uh, yeah, you can write in to letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. That's the email address, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We would love to hear from you. Please write in. Uh, If you don't want to write in a whole letter, you're more than welcome to tweet us. We are at critic acclaim. On Twitter, I am at William Debiani I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, if you want more critically acclaimed shows, we have a lot over there. We have shows dedicated to every single episode of Star Trek ever made. Mm-hmm. We have shows dedicated to every episode of the 1960s Batman. We have commentary tracks. Mm-hmm. We have uh, shows dedicated to every film ever nominated for Best picture we have films dedicated to movies that should be on disney plus but mysteriously are not Mm -hmm. we have polls to help you decide future episodes of various programs on the critically acclaimed network and um and other things as well so uh head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network if you can afford to help out the show we really would appreciate it if you can't afford to help out the show we totally get it you're under no obligation no obligation we're we're we're
1: grateful but yeah don't we we don't don't, want to make anybody's situation worse no no we don't we don't don't have a
0: lot of money either we totally get it if you want to help out the show and you can't afford to join the patreon there's a lot of different ways you can leave us a review wherever you find us a star rating write down a couple of sentences that really helps us find get higher up in algorithms and show up in more searches so that really really helps uh talk about us online and various social medias people are asking for podcasts or things let them know. That would really help us out a lot too. Um, but um, yeah, that 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 would be nice. <laughs> and uh, uh, and of course, if you're writing review, be honest. We don't want you to just you know say nice things if you don't believe it. Like w- leave any review. Just we believe in honesty in our criticism. We hope you do too. Um and um and a fish <laughs> well, and a fish too. I, I, I don't know. It'd be nice. Oh, and we have soap. Uh, If you go to to Etsy, etsy etsy.com, and you search for Salt Cat Soap, all one word, you're going to find a lot of handcrafted, unique soaps that were designed mostly by my wife and partner M. Lapis De Silva, but also a few that were designed by me. And they are really fancy. They make great gifts. Mother's Day and Father's Day are coming up. Just a suggestion there. <laughs> uh, but uh, the reviews have been really, really great so far. And we really appreciate it. So thank you, everybody, who already purchased some. We drop new designs on the first Saturday of every month. Sometimes some surprises in the middle of the month as well. And, of course, M. Lopez de Silva has a novel that is still available. It's called Hooker. It is a pro-sex work, pro-queer Feminist retrowave vigilante slasher hybrid. It is about a sex worker who fights a misogynistic serial killer in 1980s Los Angeles and she uses hooks as weapons. And it's awesome. And I do hope you check it out. It's available on Amazon, it's available at Barnes and Noble. It's, um, mm. it's a cool book. Um, anyway, that's it.
1: That's it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney.